We will be looking together this morning at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 23. If you recall, Paul's ministry in the city of Berea was peaceful, largely due to the open-minded approach of those in the synagogue in Berea, their open-minded approach to the scriptures. They were willing to search the Old Testament to see if what Paul and Silas preached about Jesus of Nazareth lined up with what the Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah. Uh, Despite this initial warm reception, however, unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica from the north came down to Berea and they stirred up the crowds in that city against Paul. So the young church, they sent Paul away to the coast where he boarded a ship and sailed to Athens. His ministry companions... Silas and Timothy, not being under the same scrutiny as Paul, they remained in Berea to continue to build up the church. In Athens, Paul would wait for Silas and Timothy to come to him. And that is where we pick up our reading this morning in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. This is the word of the Lord. What we see first of all in this text is the universal problem of idolatry. The universal problem of idolatry. Out of all the cities that have been mentioned as we've traveled with Paul through the book of Acts, Athens is probably the most familiar to you. It had been the preeminent Greek city-state for 500 years before Paul arrived there. However, Athens had had long since lost its political influence, having been absorbed into the Roman Empire. But it was still considered the intellectual capital of the known world. And though under the jurisdiction of Rome, the city was fiercely independent and retained the status of a free city. Names of philosophers like Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato are all connected with Athens. They were already significant historical figures in the first century. 
Western civilization is indebted to Athens for her ideas of liberty and democracy. With the, with the city's rich history of literature and art and architecture, there was much that would have caught the attention of a first-time visitor like Paul was to the city. Even today, some 2,000 years after Paul walked the streets of Athens, a visitor to the city would not help but be impressed with the remains of, of the ruins uh, of the temples and the shrines and the columns that are there today. It was not any of the city's adornments or architectural beauty that caught the attention of Paul, however. It was the blatant, in-your-face idolatry that filled Athens from north to south and from east to west. We read that Paul's spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. This, this Greek word here, translated full of idols, it's one word and we get that phrase, full of idols, it literally means heavy under idols. The city was submerged in them. It was like walking through a forest of statues and altars and monuments dedicated to false gods. One historian wrote, there are more gods uh, than men in Athens. After Paul disembarked from the ship at the coast, he would have walked three miles to arrive at the city center. As soon as he exited the ship and stepped foot on dry land, Paul was confronted with a sea of idols. Sanctuaries to them were built along the coast. Uh, the top of the, the very large statue of Athena, the Greek goddess Athena, which stood on the Acropolis, was visible from that main harbor area. Statues and, and memorials, they literally lined one after another all the roads that led into Athens. So here's Paul, raised a devout Jew, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and trained as a rabbi. And the first two commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol. First two commandments of the Ten Commandments. The, the, the central tenets of the Hebrew religion, which of course is carried over into Christianity, is that there is only one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. It is impossible to represent God with any image because he is beyond comprehension. What image would you represent him with? Idols at the very least, are man's attempts to tame God. Even more severe, idols are attempts to make God into one's own image or likeness. And we should not forget what Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Behind idols... Is, is very real spiritual power. It's dark spiritual power, but real power nevertheless. Whatever might have been in Athens for Paul to see, he could not see it for the ocean of idolatry that the, that the inhabitants of that city that they were swimming in. And his spirit was provoked within him. Paul felt anger and grief 
and indignation all mingled together at the sight of so many people being misled in their worship. The anger and the grief and the indignation at what he observed could rightly be described as jealousy. It was the same sort of provocation that, that God felt when, when we read a verse like Exodus 34, 14, which says, For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. It is sinful jealousy to resent someone who, who might look better than you do. It is sinful jealousy uh, to resent someone who is better at something than you are or who has something that, that you want. However, righteous jealousy, the kind of jealousy that God feels, that kind of jealousy is, is what you feel when, when someone intrudes upon a space where they have no right to be. If a, a third party enters a marriage, then the one being displaced is rightly indignant because the other person has dared to tread upon this sacred space and this relationship that is exclusively between two people. We understand that. God has a right to exclusive allegiance from each one of us. As your creator, as your sustainer, as the one who has paid such a high price to bring you back to himself, that is, as your redeemer, the Lord is rightly jealous when anything infringes upon the loyalty that you owe to him alone. And that touches upon what is at the heart of the sin of idolatry. You are giving yourself, your devotion, your allegiance, your submission to something other than God. And that is why idolatry is so much more than bowing down to a statue. We, we might laugh at the ancient people for doing so. But idolatry is alive and well even in our secular 21st century Western society. Idolatry occurs whenever you take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing. Let me say that again. Idolatry occurs whenever you take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing. Perfectionism is when you take the good desire to do well and make a God out of insisting that everything must be perfect according to, to your standard of perfection. Workaholism is when you take the good desire to work and to provide for your family and allow your busy schedule to become the idol that you serve. Consumerism is when you take the good desire to enjoy the, the gifts of life and make the pursuit of those things your goal. Codependency is when you take the good desire of looking out for a loved one and you allow their needs and their desires to run over your needs and your desires. Families can become idols. Children can be idols. Sports teams can be idols. The need to achieve or to win can be an idol. 
The list goes on and on. A good test for determining what your idols might be are to ask yourself, what dominates my life? What dominates my life? The answer should be my devotion to God, your devotion to God. If it's not, then whatever does receive your thoughts, time, resources, and energy more than God is your idol. Idols provoke God to jealousy. And it is not, it is not that, that God wants you to do without. It is that God knows that if you place your pursuit of anything above your pursuit of Him, you will fail to find what you're looking for, which is contentment. Think about it. Isn't that what you're searching for? Contentment? Something to satisfy? Idols never satisfy. They always leave you and me discontent and empty. And if they're pursued long enough, they will crush you under their weight. Paul was provoked in his spirit because God was provoked in his spirit. Paul was concerned about the people of Athens. He was concerned about the, the, the state of their spiritual lives. And so he, in verse 17, was reasoning in the synagogues are in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. There is a universal problem of idolatry, but there's also a universal knowledge of God, a universal knowledge of God. So in line with his usual approach to ministry in a new city, Paul goes into the local synagogue. He proclaims Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah promised by the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what Paul did on the Sabbath day, on Saturday. But we read the rest of the week, he was where? He was in the marketplace, talking to whoever would lend him their ear, sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ. There were two areas or two marketplaces in Athens. One was a large Roman marketplace where, where much of the economic activity occurred. The other was a Greek marketplace, and it was basically crowded with, with monuments. The Roman marketplace was crowded with people. It was bustling, and that's probably where Paul was spending most of his time. How else would people who so desperately sought for something to worship hear about the only one who is worthy of worship unless Paul took the time to tell them. Left to our own devices, we will each drift toward idolatry. And the reason for this is because every human being is created to worship. You will worship something. You will worship something. To worship means to declare the worth of something. That's what the word means, to declare the worth of something. If you're not worshiping the true God, the Creator, then your heart will find something to latch on to in order to fill that need. Everyone is designed to be incomplete, to be dissatisfied, to feel loss if there is not something at the center to which you give allegiance. 
Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Flip over in your New Testament to the right. Next book, Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at a few verses in Romans chapter 1 together to see this universal knowledge of God. Everyone knows by intuition, that is, a knowledge that is deeper than conscious thought even. Everyone knows by intuition that there is a creator. Paul, the apostle, the same Paul who is observing the forest of idols in Athens would later write in Romans chapter 1 verse 19. Romans chapter 1 verse 19. That which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. This, this inward pull toward worship is a testimony to the God who created you in order to worship Him. And that is why you can go anywhere in the world and you will find people worshiping. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what culture you go to. It doesn't matter what place you go to. You will find people worshiping. They will make something with their hands and bow down to it. Or if they're sophisticated idolaters, they will bow down to whatever consumes their thoughts, time, energy, and resources. But not only is there an inward testimony of God in each person, there is also outward evidence. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul continues writing, chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world... His, that is God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that we are without excuse. The creation testifies to the reality of the Creator. A watch does not make itself. A boat does not build itself. A cake does not bake itself. I think we all understand these things. If you see any of these things I just mentioned, you automatically know that there is somewhere a watchmaker, somewhere a boat builder, somewhere a baker, in order for those things to come into existence as they have. And so it is with nature. Nature did not create itself. And every human being instinctively knows that within that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And so the problem is expressed in verse 21. Let's keep reading. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. People have the inward testimony of God's reality and the outward testimony of His creation, and they choose not to worship God. They choose not to give God His due as the only one who is worthy of ultimate allegiance. Instead, continuing in verse 21, they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. When you do not acknowledge God as creator and sustainer, that is, the one who is responsible for the very breath in your lungs, when you do not acknowledge God, you step out of the light and you choose darkness. Rejecting God is not enlightenment. It's the opposite. Rejecting God 
is snuffing out whatever light of true knowledge you, you, uh, you possess. And that's why verse 22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The next step, therefore, after rejecting the knowledge of the Creator, who alone is worthy of worship, that next step is expressed in verse 23. Romans chapter 1, verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That is a description of idolatry. And idolatry is what surrounded Paul in Athens. Now allow me to read a little further in Romans 1. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. They reveal what occurs when people give themselves over to idolatry. This is the result. And it's very noteworthy. Starting in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever and ever. If you were to read on, you would find more uh, descriptions about what it looks like for bodies to be dishonored. But what I want to point out is that idolatry is not only an affront to God. It is an affront to God, but it's not only that. Idolatry also has real-time consequences. I just read about them in verses 24 and 25. When you give your heart to the worship of anything other than God, impurity is the result. It brings impurity with it. When idolatry runs unchecked in a society, it always leads to the degradation of the body. It's where it leads. Many of the statues that Paul walked by, that they showed male genitalia. There were these large phallic images on display along the main public roads for everyone to see. Not to be too graphic this morning, I just want to put things in perspective here. The idols and immorality bombarded the godly senses of Paul. And he definitely drew the connection between the two. That is idolatry and immorality. Why is this important? Well, it's important because we see the same thing happening in our modern day secular societies. On many levels, we as a society have outright rejected the knowledge of God. And though you will not find many Western scientific-minded people bowing down to statues, you will find that the focus of most people's hearts is on anything and everything but God and His truth. So is it any wonder that with the increased rejection of a biblical worldview, that there is an increase in pornography use, sexually transmitted diseases, an increase of confusion about sexuality, an increase in young people identifying as LGBTQ, an increase in people living together without getting married, and as a result of the promiscuity, an increase in abortion rates. 
No, it is not any wonder. The further and further a society drifts from the Creator and His law as the focus, the greater and greater is the immorality. It's what Romans chapter 1 tells us. If you remember back in Acts chapter 15, when the Jerusalem council was deciding what should be required of Gentiles who were coming out of pagan backgrounds and converted to Christianity, the four requirements that were decided upon, they all revolved around activities that took place in temples of idol worship. They should abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. That's Acts 15, 20. The sacrifices made to idols, they were bloody. They consisted of animals that were usually strangled. There was all sorts of sexual immorality that occurred in the pagan worship practices. And so a follower of Jesus was required to make a clean break from all of that. Namely, idolatry and its consequence, sexual immorality. So here's Paul spending his time in Athens attempting to persuade people that he meets in the marketplace that there is a better way to live. There's a better way. There is a way to live in which the creator of the heavens and earth is worshipped, is at the center of your life. And that way comes through the way that God himself has provided, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a life of perfect devotion to God. Jesus worshipped as one whose entire focus was ever and always on the Father. Jesus Christ was crucified. Your sins, including all the ways that you and me have failed to honor God as God, were laid upon Him. Jesus was punished on the cross as an idolater and as an immoral man, though, of course, Jesus was neither. He was punished in your place. He was punished in my place. And he rose from the dead after three days. Jesus Christ, right standing before God, is granted to all who put their trust in him. Jesus imparts new life, life brought by the Holy Spirit to convict and to renew whenever your heart loses focus. We each grow into greater and greater likeness to Jesus as we learn to worship more fully, more completely, to lay down our lives as acts of worship on a daily basis, living sacrifices. God has made a way for these idol worshipers, including you and me, to be brought back to our Creator. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us back to God. It's 1 Peter 3.18. God was the initiator at creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God then made man in his image. That means that we have the desire to worship. We have the need to worship. And we have the ability to worship. It's part of being made in God's image. But sin has distorted our view of God Sin has distorted our priorities. And so instead of running to God, our tendency is to run to anything else. 
to satisfy. As many things as are not God have the potential of becoming God to you. The opportunities toward idolatry are endless. Hear that this morning. Even though worshiping the Creator who alone deserves worship and ultimate allegiance makes the most sense, sin has so darkened the understanding that when people hear truth, their first reaction is to call it foolishness. And that's what we see in verse 18, back in Acts chapter 17, verse 18. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So we've seen the universal problem of idolatry. We've observed the universal knowledge of God. And now I want to focus on the universal need to worship. The universal need to worship. Here's Paul making his way through the marketplace over several days. He's talking to individuals that he meets. He's, he's speaking to gathered groups. And eventually, Paul attracts the notice of the local schools of philosophy. So he begins to dialogue with these individuals. Because Athens was the center of intellectual thought and discovery, there were a number of people who spent their days thinking about the big questions of life. Why are we here? How should we live? What does it all mean? Where are we going? These are questions of philosophy, and we all have them. We all have them, by the way, and we all answer them in some way or the other. We might not articulate or verbalize our answers, but we live our answers out. However, some people make the pursuit of the answers to these questions an all-consuming quest, if not a profession of sorts. And two examples of such of these philosophers were the Epicureans and the Stoics. Let me give you a little bit of background information on both groups. The Epicureans, they were founded by a man named Epicurus who died over 300 years before Paul was in Athens. The Epicureans, they, they believed in multiple gods, but to them, the gods were so distant and so remote that they did not interest themselves, themselves in human affairs. In the view of the Epicureans, they believed that the world was basically an accident, just a, a random result of atoms colliding together. And so in their view, in their thinking, there was no afterlife, there was no judgment after death. They focused on pleasure and pain. To them, pleasure and pain were the ultimate realities. Epicureans taught that pleasure is the chief good and pain is the chief evil. Now to them, pursuing pleasure did not mean getting drunk or pursuing free sex. For them, pursuing pleasure meant pursuing virtue. It was living a virtuous life that was the key to genuine happiness. And so the Epicureans, they pursued happiness by attempting to live lives of virtue. And in this way, they felt like they would be free from pain and free from passion and free from fear. That was their philosophy on life. 
Then you have the Stoics. They're founded by a philosopher named Zeno, also around 300 years before Paul arrived in Athens. They did not believe in a world of chance. They taught that the course of life was determined by fate. Everything was predetermined. Everything was fated. What's going to happen is going to happen. And they also believed in the gods, plural. But more in a, in a pantheistic way, what I mean by that, they believed that the gods permeated the world, that the gods were a part of the world, that the gods were kind of intermingled with creation. And the Stoics believed that, that human beings, that they must pursue duty. That's why you're here, to, to pursue duty. And they believe that, that people have to resign themselves to live, to live in harmony with nature and to live in harmony with the reason, even if it is painful to do so. And this is where probably the word Stoic is familiar to you. The Stoics emphasize submission to circumstances and they emphasize enduring through pain. Submit yourself to the hard stuff, endure through the pain. And so when we say, that guy is a stoic, what do we mean? We mean that he's able to grin and bear his tough circumstances. The Epicureans and the Stoics, they were at odds with one another. The Epicureans, they focused on pleasure, and the Stoics, they focused on pain. Now, those are kind of overgeneralizations, but you get the point. While the Epicureans did not think that the gods had anything to do with humanity, the Stoics believed that the gods actually took an interest in humanity, that they cared for the needs of people. And so we have in our text representatives of each group conversing with Paul. And they both took issue with the apostle and with his message. Some of them called him an idle babbler. This phrase is literally... A seed picker. That's what the word is in Greek. A seed picker. And it refers to a bird that goes, goes about and scavenges or plucks seeds from different places. It was not a compliment. Paul was accused of being someone who takes a little teaching from here, a little teaching from over there, a little teaching from there, and puts all of these disconnected teachings and messages together and then just spouts nonsense an idle babbler, a seed picker. The things that Paul was saying was so very strange and different to the ears of the Athenian philosophers, that is, the talk of one true God who cannot be represented by any image. Well, that was just weird. The talk about life after death, the talk about a coming judgment. They were, they were strange claims that the hearers, they could not make any sense of. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. It sounded like Paul was also introducing new gods because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. As I mentioned, life after death, much less a physical bodily resurrection these were ludicrous ideas to the Athenians. Now, we take those ideas for granted because of the Judeo-Christian foundations of our modern Western culture. Life after death, bodily resurrection, we don't think anything about it. The Greeks and the Romans, 
They did not. In fact, some thought that Paul was talking about a new God named Jesus and another new God named Resurrection. That's probably how they were hearing what he was saying. Often in Greek mythology, you'll have a male God, lowercase g, and his female counterpart. Think Osiris and Isis, if those names are familiar to you. And since Paul's hearers, they, they, knew, they knew nothing about an actual bodily resurrection, some assumed that resurrection was the name of the goddess who accompanied the God, Jesus. That's how they were hearing these things. So there was all sorts of confusion going on. Even more seriously, though, Athens obviously had many, many gods that were worshipped within the city, evidenced by all the idols. However, these gods, they had to be approved. Not just anyone could introduce new gods at any time, as strange as that sounds to us, because doing so could undermine the stability of society by disrupting this idolatrous harmony, I guess. This is why we read in verse 19 that Paul was brought to the Oropagus, or the hill of Ares, which is the god Mars. Sometimes this is translated Mars Hill, if you've heard of that. Now this was not a judicial summons. Paul was not on trial. But it was a semi-official summons. Paul was asked to give an account of his teaching. And he really didn't have a choice about whether he complied or not. Verse 20. You are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. There was real concern. But also real interest. And as we see in verse 21, the Athenians did enjoy spending time talking about the latest news, the newest teaching, the most interesting happenings. I guess the, the Oropagus was like, was like a barbershop, or like a beauty salon in that regard. So here's Paul. He's, he's given this incredible opportunity. Yes, he, he's being called upon to explain and to defend his teaching. And so there is some tension in the air. You can sense that. But he's also very aware that he has a captive audience. So how does Paul go about sharing the gospel with a thoroughly Gentile crowd? We would word that question like this. How do you share the gospel with someone who has no church background or no knowledge of the Bible? Which is becoming more and more of a reality in our society. It's an increasingly important question. How do you share the gospel with someone who has no church background, who doesn't know anything about the Bible? In a sense, we're coming full circle, right back to where Paul was in Athens 2,000 years ago. And the way that Paul approaches this opportunity is very instructive to us. So I'm going to spend just a few moments unpacking that, but really the next message is going to unpack that. But now... I simply want you to observe how Paul begins. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. 
Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul's spirit's provoked, indignant at their idolatry. He is grieved by their spiritually lost estate, but he also feels great compassion for them. Like Jesus, when Jesus looked at the crowds before him, Paul sees that they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. It's Matthew 9.36. And these people before him, they might have realized their spiritual state, but they probably did not, because idolatry does bring internal distress. It does bring turmoil to the spirit, as we've seen. And Paul, he does not begin with rebuking them for their foolishness. That's not how he begins. Paul begins by simply pointing out that they are a religious people. And this is a neutral approach. It's not necessarily a negative statement. In effect, what Paul is saying is, you are a people that realizes you need to worship. That's commendable. You realize that you have a need to worship. It's where you and I, where we need to begin with ourselves. We were created to worship. It's where we can begin when ministering to others. Acknowledge that everyone has a deeply rooted yearning to give ultimate allegiance to something greater than themselves. And in some area of their life, every person is doing just that. Your job your job is to help them see how their allegiance is misplaced. How apart from worshiping God, they will never be satisfied. And they will finally be condemned for refusing to give God the honor that he alone is due. For refusing to acknowledge his rightful place in the universe and in their lives. So Paul acknowledges that they're worshipers. The objects of their worship are absolutely everywhere. But every one of the countless statues and stones and columns and memorials, they represent misplaced worship. What is in your life that represents misplaced worship? What consumes your thoughts and time and energy and devotion? What consumes mine? an important question. In his indignant wanderings through the city, Paul had stumbled across this, this certain altar, and it was to no God in particular. It was inscribed, in fact, to an unknown God. Perhaps the person who made it wanted to make sure that all the bases were covered, that, that he didn't miss any gods in his worship. Or perhaps the one who erected the altar really sensed that there was a God who was being missed in the noise and the confusion of multiple deities. Which was in fact the case. There was a God that was being missed. The creator of heaven and earth. The only God who deserved worship was missed altogether for these lesser gods that deserve nothing. Whatever the case, Paul uses this for his starting point. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In ignorance, 
the residents of Athens, they failed to worship God. Now catch this, they did not fail to worship. They were worshiping, they had that down pat. Their worship, however, revealed that they completely missed the one who created them and loved them and cared for them. Things that an idol can never do. Whenever you or I give allegiance to anything other than God, we do the same thing as the Athenians. We know more truth, yet worship God in ignorance. This is clear. If, if, we, if we worshiped God with true knowledge, we would never allow anything to threaten his position of supreme worth in our lives. We wouldn't do it. Thank the Lord that Jesus Christ never allowed anything to threaten the position of supreme worth that his father held in his life. And because Jesus never did, your worship and my worship is accepted. Where our worship is imperfect, Jesus' worship is perfect. You're always able to repent when idolatry creeps in because the sin of idolatry will never ultimately condemn you if you're a Christian. Jesus was already condemned in your place. And Jesus Christ, he takes your worship, your submission, and your allegiance, and he presents it to the Father. And God accepts the worship of his beloved children because he accepts the worship of his beloved son. And that is why there is hope for the Christian. That is why there is hope for you and me. That is why there is hope for our wayward hearts. We sang about it this morning. <clears throat> Jesus lived the life of worship that we never could and that we have not. And Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. <clears throat> and Jesus Christ, he lives his life through the Christian a life that is increasingly submitted to God and worship. And that is our hope when our hearts start to drift because that is the tendency of our hearts. We're being renewed day by day as Christians, but the flesh and the spirit will continue to battle until we're glorified, until we see Jesus face to face. There's always going to be that pull, always going to be that temptation to be devoted to something else or someone else or something or some dream, anything, anything other than God that has become an idol in your life. Our hope is that we can always go back. We can always repent. We can always trust that as we submit ourselves to the true God in worship, that we're forgiven of those wayward tendencies and that we're conformed to the greater and greater likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ.
What are you devoted to? What has the attention of your time and your resources and your energy and your allegiance? It's a question we need to ask ourselves often. And if Jesus Christ is not the answer, we need to do something about it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that our hearts are pulled away from you, that there are so many distractions, things that aren't even necessarily sin, but cause our eyes to drift elsewhere. Lord, we don't want to give the, the honor and the glory that's due you to anything else besides you, Father. We just ask that you would reveal the idols of our hearts, and that, Lord, we would realize afresh, anew, that they will never satisfy. That only you will bring contentment and satisfaction and joy into our lives as we place you at the center of our lives. So as we go into this week, Father, we ask that you would help us to do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.